Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Space. I'm Tim here with Lance in the Crawl Space Studios. What's up, Lance? What's going on? Crawl Space Studios nestled in this building in the beautiful Crawl Space Studios. Uh, this interview that we have coming up was uh, quite a rush. This guy, Randy Patrick, this homicide detective, was amazing to speak with. It was pretty fun. It's from a TV show called Killing Fields that is premiering this week. Thursday, January 4th at 9 p.m. Eastern on Discovery Channel. It's the third season of this uh, hit true crime series called Killing Fields. And this time they head to the Isle of Wight County, Virginia, to investigate a brutal cold case in this third season. And Randy has been working on this case for 13 years and it's the opportunity that he has with his uh, with his task force to look into the case, interview old suspects, like he says, anybody who's alive now that was around during the time of the murder. They're re-interviewing people and hopefully to bring closure for himself and for uh, the victim's family. Okay, so thank you very much for listening. Please follow us on Twitter at CrawlSpacePod. We're also on Instagram and Facebook, so check us out there. And without further ado, let's play the interview with investigator Randy Patrick. So tell us a little bit about this case. Um, we we did watch the first episode, so we are uh, aware of some of the details. Uh, the victim is is Carrie Singer. Her, her body was found on July first, two thousand four. So tell us your history about this case. I know you were on this case from from day one. Tell us what it's like to go back into this. Well, um, I mean, actually, it ended up just being a great thing, I guess, going back into it. But it's you know, at some point, you have to you run out of leads or exhaust leads and you have to put something down because you just got too much other workload, you know, and then, and then something might surface and we go back into it. And then that lead wouldn't pan out or the lead to follow that lead wouldn't pan out. So it's been, it's been a long road. It's, you know, it's just extremely frustrating, not only for myself, but, you know, more importantly for the family, um, 
but they've uh, Mrs. Lord, Patty Lord, the mother is just always through the years, um, just been so, you know, just so supportive of me, my department, the actions we've taken. And of course, most recently she's, you know, she's very happy with us and that, you know, that helps the sting a little bit when you, when you don't solve something after 13 years, you know, it's, it's been a long road. I bet. Um, in the show, uh, first of all, I just want to thank you for having this conversation with us and um, and taking the time to do it. In you have uh, you have a lot of uh, isms in the show that Tim and I were enjoying when we were watching it. One of them is uh, detectives don't work cases; cases work detectives. Do you think that that is uh, inevitable, or um, or do you think that uh, cases eventually you know go away from detectives' minds, or or are there always trace elements left? Well, I can only speak for myself. I, you know, I couldn't generically speak for detectives throughout the country, but um, in my case, yeah, um, I, I would say the the case definitely works for detectives. It's, um, it's well, and to stick with you, you know, just so vividly over the years and stuff has a lot to do too with the type of crime and and what I saw as well and being, you know, a father of two daughters um, and seeing this, this poor girl, like I saw her and then be a part of her and her family's life now for 13 years is, um, yeah, it's not going anywhere. It's, it's, it's in the deep recesses of my mind for sure forever. What would solving this case do for you? For me personally, it would just be huge. Um, You know, I used to tell Patty, Laura, the mother, I used to tell her, I just longed for the day. Um, that I could call her and say, you know, Patty, we got the son of a bitch, you know, that's, I, I told, you know, I've said before, I said, I'm sure there'd be, you know, a lot of tears from both ends of the phone, you know, it's just, just be something to be so welcomed, you know, for, for the family and, and for me personally. What were the, uh, circumstances of Carrie's death when you found her? Actually a farmer, uh, a farmer's aide found her on, in the field. Um, an open field, not in the woods, um, but right on the sidelines of the woods. But what I observed and you know, saw is just a half-naked body um, laying there that obviously had severe blows to the head. I at that point did not know how many, um, but it was very apparent that you know she was just beat horribly to death. And then, of course, the element that which shockingly and surprisingly for me, after just less than probably 24 hours, um, what buzzers and stuff were able, you know, to do. We all see roadkill, um, but to see a, you know, a pretty young woman with, you know, no eye sockets, no tongue, no vagina. I mean, just just horrid, just horrid. Jesus Christ! Yeah, I can imagine that resonates for uh, forever in your in your. Uh in your consciousness. Well, and it does. And that's, you know, I've been asked that question, you know, why does it still stick around? I said, well, it's, I mean, it's not going anywhere. It's, I can see Carrie in my head right this second, just as clear as I can see her in 2004. Yeah. Now, uh, in, in the show, uh, you talk about a person of interest that you were on to right away, like back in 2004, and it was her ex-boyfriend. It was Carrie, the victim's ex-boyfriend, Bobby. What made you so sure back then that he had something to do with this? How, how that worked, you know, she was obviously a Jane Doe um, on my arrival. 
Um, so I went to the morgue and fingerprinted her on the morgue at, at the morgue. And, and uh, luckily she had been arrested in Florida. So quickly I got a hit um, that it was Carrie Singer. And of course, <clears throat> that she was from Jacksonville, Florida. And then it led right into where she was now residing, which was Hampton, Virginia, just across the bridge from where I live um, and where I work. So what made him the key person was, of course, you would look at boyfriends, husbands like that, the first step, step anyway. But what was unique about this is when I got to the house, and I got search warrants for the house. Um, I learned that there was a, a extremely bloody domestic two days prior to her demise um, where she and him engaged in a bloodbath upstairs, downstairs in the residence that they lived in in Hampton. And of course my, my mind where I found Carrie and what I was able to track is that she had left that residence and went to a hotel. And of course I go to the hotel and she's seen there and she gets a little cash out of an ATM that she's never seen again until our woods. So there was a day in there I didn't know what happened to Carrie, where she was before she checked in the hotel. So my theory was the domestic occurred. She had made her way somehow by taxi, whatever, back to her Hampton address, and that domestic resumed. And like a crime of passion, he beats her to death and says, holy shit, what do I do now? He's not a murderer. He's not a deranged individual, but something happened. It got out of control. And he takes her out to Isle of Wight. And what I think it's unique to, to him because I thought he loves this girl. He could have t- dragged her 10 feet and put her in the woods line. And she might not have been discovered for years. But he left her in an open field, you know, in, in plain sight. And that's what that's what a lover or, a, you know, you want the, you want the victim found because you love him. So that, that was just key and paramount to me that this this is our guy. It was, it was just everything led to him. She'd only been here a few months. She didn't know any anybody as far as what I knew. Other than this boyfriend, Robert Desern, who brought her up from Jacksonville, he was down there doing some work and met her and brought her back to Isle of Wight County and up the city of Hampton. And a few months later, and she's beat to death and found in the field. So, yeah, he was he was obviously key suspect and remained that way for years. I mean, he remained even though he passed a polygraph and whatever for me um, over the years, he remained my suspect. I mean, for for many years. I just didn't have any solid evidence to, to you know, hem him up on. Now, in the show, it uh, it talks about the polygraph that he aced back in two thousand four. Why was so much stock? Um, why was so much stock given to that aced exam back then? Oh, there was not in my okay. mind. There was no there was no stock in in him acing the polygraph. Um, I, I, I don't I don't believe in them much. I think they can be beaten. And I believe that's why they're not in our court of law system today. And I'm, I'm thankful they're not. Um, but no, a lot of a lot of investigators back in the day said, "Man, he ace the polygraph, dude. This ain't your guy." Well, I, I didn't buy that for a second. Um, I attributed that to we had kept him up all. You know, when we picked him up and finally got into the station to talk to him, and you know, he's, it's late, it's wee hours in the morning. We called in a polygraph examiner. You know, the guy is yawning during this interview when he learns the love of his life had just been brutally murdered. And I it just, I mean, I I watched the, you know, the, the interrogate or the questions by the polygraph examiner and just none of it made sense. He was just too calm. And I, I, I couldn't figure it. I couldn't read it. I didn't, you know, but for some reason he aced the polygraph. But no, it did not. 
I, I, I did not walk away from that saying, holy shit, he's not our guy. Not for a second. Right. Now, you uh, you have a really good relationship, at least from what it seems on the episode that we watched with uh, Chris Coughlin, your, your partner. And he says a couple of times that he brings fresh eyes to the case and seems to really, it, it kind of went in a direction I wasn't expecting. I, you know, I, I thought it was going to be almost adversarial, but it turned into him um, being the, the fresh eyes and looking at you as, as a, uh, really, he, he really seems to look up, look up to you. Um, and those fresh eyes do bring other, um, techniques and methods like the, the voice test, which was fascinating. And that's, uh, that's something I don't want to spoil for anybody who hasn't watched the show, but was there anything else about your relationship with, with Coughlin that you looked at and said, wow, this is perfect for what this case needs, uh, 13 years later? No, I mean how that sort of came about when Potter, Lieutenant Potter, advised me and said, "Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna hook you two up," um, you know. And I at first I was a little skeptical, I guess, because I didn't really know Chris, and I knew he'd only been a cop for a couple of few years or whatever, and just new into the detective division. And I don't know, it just I, I thought, well. And then I learned a little bit more about him, and that he came not only as a cop but with two college degrees and. And I know I'm so out of date on technology, and and and, and I know that. I mean, I'm forthright about that. I know I am, and, and I, but I don't even have the desire. You know, um, I'm still very old school in in, in my investigative tactics uh, techniques, and and I thought, you know what, this is probably a, a great marrying of, of two cops. You know, and so I was at, I I quickly became excited. You know, to to work with Chris, thinking like, you know. And he did help me throughout, like, you know, he, he would have these programs or whatever. And he'd say, hey, man, I just looked up and so-and-so. And I said, what what program is that? And he'd say, well, look, I just found this guy here that that lady mentioned. And I'm like, wow, I didn't even know that existed. So with that kind of stuff, the technology that he was able to, I guess, instill on me and, and uh, get me on board a little bit. Yeah, that was not only impressive, but extremely helpful. He calls you a quintessential Rolodex in a digital world, and I thought that was a really apt uh, partnership because you do need those Rolodexes. Yes. <laughs> well, I do. <laughs> <laughs> so episode one starts off with uh, a prison tip or a uh, an inmate in, in a prison uh, who's in there for life says all of a sudden he knows who killed Carrie Singer. Affectionately nicknamed the shitbird. Right. Yep. Is that a technical term? Yeah, a police term? Yeah. Uh, it's my technical term for <laughs> all murders that are in federal penitentiaries. They're all shitbirds. They're all going to lie to you. Right. If their lips are moving, they're going to Okay, yeah. So I guess that's my question. Um, like, how how credible are prison leads or prison tips in general? Well, if this would have been early on, if he'd have been a tipster from, you know, going through his situation he was in, and he really had information, why the hell wouldn't he have used it then? Why Why did he wait 13 years to send a letter to our department saying, hey, I got some knowledge of that, that girl that was murdered out in your county? That, I mean, that's just first and foremost, like, what the hell? I, I would have played that card if I was in his shoes many, many moons ago. Um, so that was, that was the first red flag, if you will. However, um, you know, he says he has these couple guys, no league goes untouched. I mean, it's, it's just been that way and it will always be that way in police work. And it has to be that way because just that one little bit of evidence that, you know, it's the old, like, you know, I mean, could he know something? I mean, hell, I guess I, you know, stranger things have happened. So 
you know, the decision was made. Let's pack up. Let's go talk to this shitbird, if you will. And, and uh, we only did it once. We did it twice. So <laughs> and that was a seven and a half hour trip one way each time. So Jesus. Um, yeah. I mean, who knows? I, you know, you you got a guy, you're, you're talking man to man. And, and he's saying, yeah, I have this information, but I want you to give me this. I, and I can give it to you. I've got it. I can give it to you. Um, so when he's dangling that carrot, we got to stick with it, you know, till we find out either he is full of shit, you know, or he in fact does have something. And that's sort of where we were with those interviews. I really enjoyed watching uh, the interview with him uh, between you and Coughlin uh, and the technique you had when you were interviewing him, the way the two of you played off each other. Was that something that you and Coughlin went over uh, sort of rehearsed together or did it just come naturally when you sat down in the interrogation room? Well, I would say it absolutely came natural. People generically, police don't do the good cop, bad cop on, you know, the big game plan or whatever. It usually turns out that way, though. Um, Like, you know, one interview will go in and I'll just say, look, I'll, I'll, you know, he'll go interview this person with me. Okay. I'll say, do you want me to lead off? You want to lead off? He'll be like, oh, I'll lead off. I'm like, all right, well. You're gonna be nice to him. You're gonna which what, what angle are you gonna play? And they'll say, well, yeah, I'm just, you know, and I'm gonna do this and that. And if you want to chime in and jump in their shit a little bit, go ahead. So that's sort of so it just sort of comes natural. You just sort of play the interview and you play it out and see, you know, how the cards fall. And then just just your skill, whatever that skill is, or you know, that's just sort of <laughs> it's just what you go with. You know, it's what you go with. Sometimes sometimes it works, sometimes it don't. Well, I know if you were interrogating me, I'd probably start to admit stuff that uh, that I did not do for sure. Okay, well, let's start with this. What did you do last night at 8 p.m.? Where were you? <laughs> let's, let's take that one off there. <laughs> <laughs> do you get... You, you said a couple of times in the show that... Uh, that you're, you know, that that got me fired up. I'm gonna get fired up. Do you really get fired up? What's fired up like for you? So what? I that's a line or something I said on the on the show you watched. Yeah, yeah. You you start talking about um, if you find the guy and you you start talking about the new leads and and you you say a couple of times that that gets you fired up. Um, I I just want to know what is what is Randy like fired up? That's more than what we saw in that episode. Well, I think for. For any, if you've been working at a, a case for that many years, then you finally got a lead that seemed like, wow, this is this, this is better than a lead, any lead I've had in the last 10 or 12 years. Um, obviously, it's going to fire you up like, holy shit, are you kidding me? You know, <laughs> am I really going to solve this thing? Because, you know, there comes times you, over the years, you, you doubt yourself and what, you know, what could I have done different? What I do wrong? You know, I mean, I can't believe I'm not solving this freaking crime. You know, it's. You put everything into it, and you know, and like I say, in this case, has been over the years, thousands of hours. You know, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of people interviewed, and and now reopening and re-interviewing. So, yeah, when I opened this thing back up, and and I'd get some kind of leader, a piece of technology that came forward we didn't have before, a piece of evidence that we were able to get to the lab that we couldn't submit 13 years ago. Now they're taking it. Oh yeah, yeah, I get fired up. It's like, damn, let's go. You know. Yeah. And uh, there's a scene in, in episode one where you talk to Patty, Carrie's mom, 
And uh, mm-hmm. so you tell her that you wouldn't put her through this again unless you felt this time was going to be different. Basically, you told her that the case is sort of uh, going to be jump-started. How, I guess my question is, how hard is it for you to tell the mom of a murder victim that you're going to solve the case when you don't know yet? Well, I mean, I don't know. It certainly wasn't thought out or, you know, I didn't have a script to to, to talk to Patty Lord. It's just knowing I was opening the case, it was, you know, it was just more, I want this so desperately for her. Um, And I just, you know, I felt, I just felt good about it. We're, you know, we're going balls to the wall here. You know, we're going to get this thing solved. You know, it's been, it's just been way too many years. And, and, uh, and I think it's important to know that I'm going to put 150% in and to share with that victim that, you know, we're going to get this thing. I don't want to tell him, well, you know, we might never solve it. Who knows? I mean, I did, I don't know. That wouldn't even ever come to my mind to say that. Um, not that I want to mislead. I never intended to mislead her. Mm-hmm. Um, it was more just of a, I wanted to reassure uh, just a, a positive attitude that I had. And I did have, I yeah. have that attitude of, of solving this case. You know, it was not, not make believe. Now you, you also, you put a lot of work into it, 13 years. And you said that the, uh, the case destroyed you. And you said the case not only destroyed you, but it destroyed obviously Carrie Singer's family. Um, do you think that for a lack of a better word, that this case is, is sort of your destiny that although it destroyed you, it's, it's making you. Well, and I don't know, I, I don't ever recall saying this case destroyed me. I, I don't recall that if I did, um, I, I don't recall saying that. Um, it's, it has eaten away at me and over the years um, and, and, and caused a, a lot of heartache and, and, disappointment and frustration and just every adjective you could think of for, you know, not solving something, but no, I would definitely not say this case destroyed me. Um, and if I, if I did, I would, I would even correct that. It, um, I mean, that just sounds like I'm a defeatist that, you know, it destroyed me. I'm no longer good as a cop. I can't interview people. No, I, like I say, if I said that, I, I, it was out of, it was not for that context that I, I have been destroyed as a result of this case. I don't know if that answers your question, but I do want to clarify that. Yeah. Yeah, it was an unintentional clarification, so perfect. Um, so the the rumor that uh, that some boys did this, which is sort of the local word around town, um, like how what, – what do you think about, about that? Like some – the potential that some local boys did this and it had nothing to do with Bobby, her ex-boyfriend. Well, that, that – bit of information that source um came recently um during the during this reopening of this case um and i did it was this this source said that somebody had told him hey i heard these boys from so-and-so you know and who were the boys oh, i don't know they just said these boys from an adjoining jurisdiction in surrey county um i didn't put any stock in that mm-hmm. at all is, um, I'm not sure how big the show picked up on that or whatever, but no, I I didn't put any stock in. I never thought it was just a group of boys just out playing boy games and murdered some chicken through in the, in the field. Right? No, never believed that for a second. 
Is that a, a like a, a pretty typical rumor though that that you'd hear like oh it's just these you know sort of like towns town no. folk talking no, no that, I was, don't. that was that was never a rumor during this course of this investigation uh, never okay and is that something that you hear in other murders or uh, that you've heard in other investigations or is this just like rumors and and these these local people kind of just think that it's these locals and maybe they know or maybe they don't is that something that's typical at all i don't think i can answer that for somebody else no i yeah. i would i don't in my case no I, I would not say that's just typical that everybody just says yeah well that person got murdered it's probably just some local boys or girls or whatever no I, okay no you what you do get is you know i don't know nothing you knock on the door i don't know anything that's the beauty of reopening an old case because it, it is old and re-interviewed everybody from scratch from the same people if they were still alive they got re-interviewed if we could find them and your hope is back in the day they might have said i don't know nothing i don't know nothing or so-and-so said this but i didn't say that i never saw that and then hopefully now all these years later they might say well you know they weren't so forthcoming back in the day because they were scared that's that's now that you do here in every case you know i don't want to get involved i don't want to be involved nobody wants to be involved in anything yeah, and that's what makes police work so freaking hard. You know, no one wants to get involved. If they hear something, know something, they don't want to share it with the police. And that's a that's a sad state of affairs. But now the show is unique because it it um, is from uh, law law enforcement perspective. Uh, how difficult was it to discuss information about the case to the producers of the show without revealing? sensitive case information because you must have some information that is uh you know you want to keep under wraps and you don't want uh you don't want that to be out there that might hurt the investigation was that a challenge for you no it wasn't a challenge at all actually that cyrus media did an excellent job they were uh you know very forthright in the beginning like you know they would not interfere with the investigation blah 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 um if, if we were if we and there were a situation where we'd say, like, you know, hey, y'all, you, you can't run with that right now, you know. And they're, oh, absolutely. I mean, they 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 never overstepped their bounds. And it was pretty much they were just sort of just following, you know. I mean, I knew there was cameras rolling or whatever, but when I'm in an interview room, I'm not thinking about what Siren's media is looking at or whatever. And um, it was just normal, you know, normal police work, so. Now, I uh, just want to circle back real quick to the uh, domestic uh, violence uh, incident that happened. I, I think it was two nights before uh, Carrie was murdered. Yeah, I believe, it, I believe it was like 48 hours or something prior to her being discovered. Okay. Uh, and, and you mentioned that there was blood on the scene upstairs and downstairs. Can you give us any more details on how that unfolded or, or were there weapons used or anything that could be foreshadowing for the murder other than the actual domestic itself? Sure, I can. Yeah, 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 I can share that. Um, the the victim in this case, she was, I learned, um, she could be a very aggressive woman. Um, they, they fought quite often, I learned, and she was usually the primary aggressor. Um, and in this, this scenario at the domestic, the, the weapon of choice that Carrie used against Robert Desern was a doorknob. Um, they had some people come into his house to do some changing of the locks or whatever. And so when this domestic started, there was, I, when I got with the search warrant, there were several doorknobs and stuff on the stair steps going upstairs and stuff. And, and um, she had picked up one of those and that's what she was using as her weapon of choice, like swinging it at Bobby's head. And 
um, at some point her hand gets a big gash supposedly and they're upstairs downstairs you know things flying around see that we had a lot of blood splatter in the downstairs bathroom on the walls the dressers going up the staircase into the living room into the foyer um a lot of blood um a lot of blood um but very typical of head wounds and um you know and if you're if if you got a severe slice in an open hand and you're way way laying on somebody and you're you're doing a lot of cast off yourself you know um splatter and such so that was the weapon that she used was a doorknob interesting yeah and so bobby didn't try to clean up this uh mess in between when she went missing and you guys discovered this uh blood in this house he eventually did um when when that when that domestic happened um bobby leaves neither one drove neither one had a car neither one had a driver's license um he had too many duis i believe or something but he left the residence and walked up the street to the fire station and the fire paramedics were tending to his head and said, Holy crap. So they called the police. So the local police in Hampton show up. Well, Hampton shows up and they get warrants for Carrie's arrest as being the primary aggressor um, for the battery that she caused on Robert. So they go back to the house to arrest Carrie and she's gone. She had left the residence. Um, so that's how all that started getting her. I don't know what happened to her that night. The next day, she does check into a hotel at the King James Motel in, in uh, Newport News, uh, which is just right over the James River Bridge from my county. Was she alone? And that's what, and she was alone. That's where I traced her to. I went to her room, um, her little bag or little satchel or whatever um, was on the floor next to the bed. You could tell the bed had not been sat on. She simply walked in the room, set her stuff down, her little overnight bag, and the hotel owner did see her, recognize her, said she walked out the door of the hotel, and he saw her walking down Jefferson Ave, which I traced her um, about three, two, three city blocks down. She went to a 7-Eleven, withdrew $40 cash out of Robert Desern's account, and that was the last trace of Carrie Singer until I saw her in the woods the next day. Well, that is a, uh, it is a tragic story um just all 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 elements of it the the domestic leading to her running away you know or you know obviously running you know just to get some some time to herself collect her thoughts i imagine um and it's a direct connection to to her you know body being found um when you look back on it and you know your your experience with the case. Do you think about specific incidents that you could have handled better, or that you you know could go back in time and maybe question a little differently? Is there anything that that you just bang your head against the wall? I mean, other than the entire thing? No, not really. And and like I said, there's there's been numerous times that I've, I've what could I have done different? You know, what what did I do something wrong? You know, um, and I think the answer to that is no. Um, for the technology, what we had back in the day, um, I think I did everything in my power. Um, that's what made it so frustrating that I, you know, I, I, I couldn't, I, in myself, I couldn't find any mistakes. And of course that with Chris Coughlin coming on board, that, that was sort of a hope there too, that, you know, with him going and diving into it from what I saw 13 years ago, the case files that I created that he might say, you know, holy shit, you never, 
did you ever talk to this guy? You know, or didn't, or, or you know, but say that didn't happen. Well, I, I should say, fortunately, that didn't happen. Um, yeah, you you do anyway, strike us as yeah. a particularly uh, thorough detective. So, um, yeah, that was a. Uh, that was a uh, that was just just something that we were curious about on our end, and uh, I guess I just just want to know what, what else is coming up on uh, Killing Fields season three. I don't know if I'm supposed to say you just need to watch and see. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I can tell you. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Well, it is I can't a tell you much. <laughs> it is a great show. It it flies at an intense pace. Uh, you you will not be bored when you watch it. You really start off in one place and and you you just kind of ride the wave uh, until the end, and it's like like forty five minutes without commercials. So um, it flies at a at a really decent clip, um, and it premieres January fourth, nine p.m. Uh, Eastern on Discovery Channel on the Discovery Channel, and it is called Killing Fields, the Isle of White County, Virginia. person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization Private Investigations for the Missing because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter Brianna disappeared in March 2004, he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers, but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. 
Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. <laughs> 